Wednesday special of Crypto with English. Now, we have, and rather, we are in for a particular treat today. So as you all know, when I talk about the vanguard of Web3 or the vanguard of blockchain, often I am bringing up certain areas and regions, like the UAE, for instance. However, uh, I have not clarified who the individuals of that vanguard are. And origin stories have an interesting way of writing the future. So for anybody who's turned on a TV or has been on social media, you most certainly know her name. I'd like to warmly introduce to you all Sandy Carter, Chief Operation Officer and Head of Business Development at Unstoppable Domains. She's been featured on CNN, Forbes, Huffington Post, you name it. She, uh, prior to Unstoppable Domains, she was a vice president at Amazon Web Services. And before that, she was a GM at IBM. Among her accolades, she's the founder of Unstoppable Women of Web3. And she's the founding member of Blockchain Friends Forever. And of course, any major Web3 blockchain conference summit, you've certainly seen her name headline it. Sandy, thank you so much for coming on to the show today. Well, thank you, Adam, for having me. I'm so excited to be with you guys today. Thank you. So obviously, there has to be a properly tuned mass message in order to reach mass adoption. So as somebody who is part of the Vanguard, where exactly are we in that process, in that journey right now? Well, the way I view it is that we're still in the very early stages of adoption of the technology. And in fact, a lot of times I like to say we're in the modem stage. And I know many people don't even know what a modem is. <laughs> like that was Maybe like right. Yeah. Way I remember those. Then, when the internet started, you know, there yeah. were actually movies about it and everything. Oh, the old dial up. <laughs> you got it. You got yeah, it. Yeah, I remember. That's where we are right now, you know, um, and I think signs of that are we're still talking about Web3, we're still talking about blockchain, we're still talking about the underpinning technologies. And I think when a technology matures, we're not talking about the tech itself, we're talking about the value that it brings to the table. So I think, you know, when we get mass adoption, we'll be talking about the new internet or maybe just the internet and not all the underpinning technologies that lie underneath it. So I think we still have a long way to go. And to me, a lot of it is taking out a lot of the terminology, Adam, that you and I know so well, sure. like NFT, like Mint, like, you know, all these terms that we, that don't really say what we mean, uh, but they mean right. something to a, a technical person. I think once we remove some of those, like I love what Reddit did, like they didn't even call their NFT collection NFTs, they were digital collectibles, like much more understandable, right? Um, I think those are some of the things that we're going to start to see is less use of the technology and more use of common words. Um, another thing I think that we, you know, that we really need to talk about too is just ease of use. So um, I teach a class for a university and all of my, you know, university kids, I was teaching them how to set up a wallet, how to put crypto in it. It took them like 20 minutes, but then I taught a group of top 50 C chief digital officers, CDOs, chief digital officers. So these are super wicked smart people, technology savvy. And it took two and a half hours where for the college kids, it took 20 minutes because it's so different. So unusual and not user friendly. 
Um, so I think that that has to change too. some of the ease of use. And we're seeing new wallets come out like Timeless and Creases that really know and understand that Web2 audience. And then I think the final thing is standards. And we're starting to see some of those emerge. So for example, we have the Open Metaverse Alliance, which is you know, look, working on interoperability between metaverses. We're looking at things like the Web3 domain, domain alliances, which is trying to ensure we don't have collisions of Web3 domains, those kind of things as well. So I think those would be three of the things that I would say we need to work on, the language that we speak, the ease of use, and these standards committees that are that are starting is how even Web2, when it was in its wild, wild west days, kind of started at the same place and then has matured. Right, and I think those are very uh, excellent points you've raised as well. Perhaps the terminology isn't quite there yet where the average person has something to contextualize their lives with. So as you mentioned, NFT. So NFT has virtually no context for many people in of itself. But digital collectibles, on the other hand, you know, that, that is an easy thing to conceptualize or intuit at the very least. I completely agree. Language does matter. You know, the words that you speak do matter to who gets it and who doesn't. And, you know, when you say non-fungible token, people are like, right. oh my God, there's so many words in that sentence. I don't know and I don't want to know what it, they mean. Um, so I think wording and phraseology and how you talk about things really does make a difference. It's why, you know, some marketing campaigns do really well, some don't. I do think that it will, uh, I think changing terminology will also gate the success, the widespread adoption of Web3 for sure. Wonderful. And a question I always like asking is, what is your origin story getting into this space, especially given your background at Amazon Web Services and at IBM, hopping onto Web3 and essentially journeying, venturing into Web3 and making your own mark, that's a very daring move for most people. So I want to know about what was the series of moments or that moment where it clicked for you? Yeah, I mean, um, I think it really started, well, you know, I worked with AI for quite some time in a few different companies, the last one being Amazon Web Services. And I bring that up because I think AI actually works with Web3, and actually, Web3 makes AI better. But um, when I started getting into really the Web3 blockchain space was when I was at Amazon Web Services and a lot of my customers and partners were using blockchain. Uh, that's really where it started for some really complex supply chain operations, um, for a ledger. Um, and it was really quite interesting because they were, you know, hospitals, Department of Defense, banks. So no Web3, it was really used by a lot of what we would consider just major companies in that space. And so I was really curious why they chose blockchain um, and started doing research on it. It's programmability, it's security, it's interoperability, you know, the fact that there's no one party that controls it. Right. And that really got me, you know, very interested in blockchain and therefore Web3. And at the same time, I was looking at a lot of my customers who were doing, you know, AR and VR for training, really jumping into the metaverse or digital twins for manufacturing. All of that's really like, I mean, a digital twin is just a metaverse that you've replicated the real world and are, are simulating something in it. 
And so um, I started digging into all those technologies too. And so, you know, again, I'm a kind of a tech girl. So having it look at all those technologies and all those technologies really make up what we're doing today in Web3, with blockchain, with the metaverse. And so I got really curious. I started doing side projects. And by side projects, I don't mean like setting up a project to make money, but playing around with it, studying it, really trying to understand it um, better for my customers as well as for me. And then um, I had a meeting with the CEO of Unstoppable. thought he had a really powerful vision that was, you know, really forward looking. And so... Um, I guess the rest is history. He came up to visit me, took me to dinner in Seattle, which is where Amazon Web Services is, and convinced me that digital identity and Web3 was a gap, something missing, and that we could really have an impact on the world, uh, you know, if we could solve this problem. Wow. And wonderfully put as well. Uh, when I first ventured into this space almost three years ago, and you mentioned previously jargon, and you could say the verbiage, the terms, that was probably the first hurdle, I guess you could say, conceptualizing and understanding those things. But you raised a very interesting point just now, how blockchain can improve AI. And AI is, listen, it is a controversial issue. It is a controversial technology. Could you unpack that? How blockchain can, technology can augment AI for, for betterment, for the betterment of society, for the good of society, rather than perhaps in the reverse? Yeah, you know, uh, one of the things that I think is now top of mind for lots of customers, in fact, this morning I was on a call and we were doing a lot of deep dives into, um, you know, what are you concerned about with AI? And one of the biggest things was, you know, we already have a problem with the truth. Like, what what is the truth and how do we make sure that we, we discover the truth? And so given that that is, you know, one of the challenges of AI, by the way, AI is, is exciting and it's introducing so many incredible things that are wicked affordable. Uh, I was talking earlier about, you know, chat GPT for 20 bucks a month, like the best $20 you ever spend. There are some really amazing things that are, that's happening with it. But at the same time, Given its affordability, now these tools also really allow anybody to make fake photographs or replicate someone's voice or uh, do a video. And so I think that using blockchain technology and digital identity, now you can actually provide a verified proof of identity, adding trust and safety to some of the interactions on, uh, you know, online. And I think that's what people are looking for is what I'm looking at really the person. Is it really what they said? Is it really their quote? So you could imagine having some sort of blockchain identified profile. And we're doing this today, for instance, that's a kind of a type of proof of humanity to ensure that your digital assets and your identity and you have a single point of access and that you can keep that user's privacy under their control so that you can verify, verify and have credentialed information. Um, so, and you tell me if this is too technical, but you know, when you're using the blockchain network, you have a hash and that hash really serves as a crucial tool to prove that an image or a video or voice has not undergone some sort of alteration. It's like, a, like almost like a fingerprint, a cryptographic fingerprint. And, um, 
once it's generated, you really can't modify it. And so that what that means is that this blockchain-based solution now makes it increasingly difficult for a malicious actor or someone to manipulate or tamper with digital content. And so for me, given that the number one issue that we're seeing from companies today in adoption of AI being, you know, how do I verify things are true? How do I not? This enables that cryptographic token to make it possible to link a verified real-world credential to that digital persona. So, for example, let me take Unstoppable Domains. You know, Unstoppable Domains has a digital profile, and it allows a user to attach a whole set of blockchain assets to it. And those assets now add trust to the interaction. So, for instance, if someone claims to be a contact that I met at a conference, and that profile shows that they didn't attend that conference, then I'm not going to trust them. But if they had, then I might be more likely to trust them. So there are lots of things that could enable that trust. They're available today, but again, it takes that, that view of AI plus digital identity or blockchain identity to really manage that too. And it really gets to, I think, you know, that AI and Web3 can be used for good. If you have this verifiable digital identity, it offers that way to combat um, you know, some of the risks of AI and really enable AI to focus on the good. Right. So it would be fair to say for the issue of AI being regulated, this is something that has been constantly analyzed and litigated. So if there is to be a scheme where artificial intelligence is to be regulated to, let's say, protect the public, would it be fair to say in order, <clears throat> excuse me, in order to expedite that and make that efficient, that is, going to, that is going to involve decentralized technologies, to say the least? I think so. I mean, I think that decentralized technology enables a lot of the regulations that people are talking about to come to be. If you look at the AI Act that's occurring in Europe, and I, I would say that Europe today probably has the biggest restrictions on what's happening in the space. Um, I think many of those things could be automated, not done on a, you know, uh, a manual basis and could be freed up with some of the decentralized technology that's out there. And I, when, I, when I say that, I really am talking about blockchain and that digital identity space. Right. And speaking of, excuse me, unstoppable domains, could we deep dive into the significance of blockchain connected web addresses and perhaps in that process dispel some misunderstandings of NFTs? So, you know, one of the things I really love is that um, unstoppable domains builds a digital identity and that digital identity enables you to really travel with that identity across the metaverse, across the internet. And when I say that, um, I try to put it in context for Web2. So if you think about Web2, if you're um, in a Web2 world and you log in with your password and your username, that's really your digital identity. But you really don't own that because you're using that to log into a platform. And then another platform has another identity and another identity. And so if something happens with that platform, you actually lose access to your digital identity and you lose access to any data you had. And in fact, most of the data is owned by the platform. So if we think about Google and Facebook, for example, 
Uh, they just came out with a big article highlighting that they made $100 billion selling your data and my data. Um, and they were bragging about it. I don't know if that's something to brag about. I think owning your own data, owning your own digital identity is a human right. Like I should own that data. That's who I am. I would never allow someone else to own my bank account and my driver's license and everything else about me. And so why do I allow that to happen online? And that's what this whole area of digital identity unopens or in the Web3 world, what we're doing in Unstoppable Domain. I can use Sandy.NFT, for example, or Sandy.X, and I can log into 600 different applications. I can use Sandy.X to log into a financial application or a metaverse or a game or, 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 you know, whatever that happens to be. So that means that as I do that, that digital identity is mine. It can't be taken away from me. And all the data that's coming in is also mine. So I get to decide who gets that data, when they get the data, how much data they get, and for how long they get that data as well. For me, that's so, such a powerful promise that I get to own and control my own, own data. From really simple things like um, I ordered a t-shirt to wear at a conference. I, got, I ordered it 14 days ahead, Adam. I got 17 emails for them trying to upsell me more t-shirts, 17 right. emails, 14 days. I would never have shared my email with those people. Um, you know, to something more serious, which is healthcare data. A friend of mine, his son just got diagnosed with a very rare illness. And so he went, started Googling it and looking it up, hadn't told the rest of the family yet. He started getting emails from health insurance companies, from people who offered natural cures. So it was very clear that his data had already been shared without his permission about his son. And I think that's very serious. I take that very seriously. So I do think that this whole concept of owning your own identity is very powerful, um, both for your personal digital safety, as well as just, you know, ensuring that you don't lose things. Like there was, you know, a couple of uh, applications that were going under and people lost all their photos, all their data, everything that they had there because they never actually owned it. Right. Well, I have to say, having that level or having complete autonomy and true custody of your personal information is a wonderful thing. And it seems, at least, you know, from the Web 2 era and now as we're beginning to trek in the Web 3 era, we've really only had an illusion or a mirage as far as our privacy and you could say the right to our data and, and, how, we, and, and how we use it. So I guess, would it be fair to say that, let's say through unstoppable domains and you know, through, let's say, mass adoption of this type of technology as time goes on, would it be fair to say that this will actually improve and strengthen people's individual liberties of privacy? Absolutely. And also, I think it can improve your trust of other people going back to, you know, it's not just AI, but it's other things too. So, you know, Adam, um, if you look at a LinkedIn profile, you can type anything in there you want. You can type in there, I support the climate, but there's nothing in there that's verifiable or credentialed that showed you actually do support the climate. Right. Whereas inside my, uh, you know, inside our unstoppable domains, like for me, I do support the climate. You can go look and I have a verifiable certificate that shows 
I purchased a tree for every digital collectible that I bought. So it's not everything, but it shows you that I put my money where my mouth is. Or even my schooling. Um, you know, LinkedIn says that 40% of people on LinkedIn who say they went to Harvard never went to Harvard. But how, wow. do, you, how, do, you, how do you know, right? You look at the LinkedIn profile, it looks like someone went right. there. Right. Yeah, there's no um, way to verify. But there's no way to verify it. So again, in my digital profile, we now have, you know, schools and classes giving what they call soul bound tokens. And what a soul bound token is very simply is that once I have it, I can't transfer it. So I can't graduate from a school. Let's say I graduated from Princeton and then transfer the diploma to you because that diploma is only going to be connected to me. And so it really verifies and credentials that information. And I think that's what we're all looking for is information that's true and correct. And so I really loved it. One of my customers was looking at a, the Web3 profile that goes with your digital identity. And he said, wow, this is really a kind of a LinkedIn, but a verified and credentialed LinkedIn. You're not just writing about your brand and trying to brand yourself or your company the way you want to be. It actually showcases who you are. Um, and I've had people who are branding themselves go, it's really interesting. I thought I would have described myself like as a car lover, but as I looked at my profile, I actually have more things associated with sports. So maybe I'm really more of a sports person. And so I, I do like that surfacing of who you are in reality versus who you think you are or what you perceive yourself at, especially for companies, right? I really like the verification so that I know if you said as a company, I support ESG and I find no proof, then that really helps me decide, do I really want to buy from your company, for example, if, if that's important to you. Right. Wonderfully put. One of the things I like to deep dive and unpack on this show are better use cases and let's say lesser use cases. Uh, there are certain contexts where blockchain is essentially a better practical application, for instance. So with what you have an, at Unstoppable Domains, you essentially have a blockchain-derived domain that you could steer, that you can have total control and sovereignty of. Your information, what you put out there, and there is an instant, you could say, a, a uh, instant evidence of, or an instant signature, rather, or fingerprint of ownership. With what's been going on, not necessarily now, but if we were to look at last year and the year before, you could see you could say the NFT art bubble. That seemed to have taken all the air out of the room when it came to the discussion of NFTs. Now, I am not knocking on NFT art, but there are, you could say, there are arguably greater uses and practical applications of NFTs. As you've been going about your journey in unstoppable domains, was that unfair coverage, or you could say that misunderstood coverage, was that a big concern for you as you've been going about this? You know, I would say it wasn't because we believe that utility is greater than hype. And so, you know, you can hype things up and you can market it, but there comes a time when, you know, you have to you have to show value. What, what is your value that you're bringing to the table? And so for us, from day one, we've been focused on 
what is the utility of my domain? How am I going to use it? What am I going to do with it? Um, so we wanted to make sure that anyone who, who wanted to have their digital identity with Unstoppable could leverage that. So I would say the top three use cases that we're seeing today with the digital identity are some, is something very simple, which is your email. You can leverage your digital identity to send encrypted email. So, you know, I know today you could you can send email with with uh, Gmail or Outlook or whatever you use for your business. But a lot of people today want to be able to send encrypted email, something that's private as well. Why messaging tools like Signal have taken off. And so with my Sandy.x or Sandy.nft, I can use that and send an encrypted email to someone, which I think is a great use case because we all unfortunately email every single day. Um, the other use case that we see a lot of is that people use Sandy.nft to resolve a wallet address. It seems very simple, but it was very one, one, very right on target with one of our top use cases. So taking Sandy.nft and using that to convert to, you know, that long strings of numbers and letters as well as we go along. Today, we do 30 million resolutions of a wallet address with a digital identity a week, 30 million a week. So that, that tells you that's a lot. I, I would, I would um, do the analogy to what happened with, you know, um, in the internet days, you know, before um, I wasn't around, but you used to type in like 149.32.something to get to an internet ID versus, you know, aws.com. And that's what we're doing with a digital identity. You're saying Sandy.nft equals this long set of letters and numbers, which transacts, translates into a, a wallet address. So when I say that would be a big number two use case. And then number three is, um, I would say, using it for loyalty. And why is that important? Because, you know, today you see people that are platform-based making money off of our data. Well, why couldn't we make some value off of our data. And so right. what we're seeing is people getting a lot of rewards. So for example, storing a ticket in your digital identity to prove you went to the Super Bowl or you went to a music festival or you went to Formula One racing, um, being rewarded for their loyalty. You know, maybe having gone to Formula One in Singapore and then London and then, you know, another location, maybe getting something for doing that. Or maybe something as simple as, you know, um, buying three Barbie dolls. We got the Barbie movie coming out, right? Buying three Barbie dolls and getting rewarded for that because you stored the ownership or the proof of that inside of your wallet. I think that that's just emerging as a use case, but I think that one's going to continue to grow and grow and grow. And because we at Unstoppable have 860 integrations, I could do this entire podcast just on use cases, um, but I'll just stop there with those top three that I'm seeing today. Sure. Now, I saw in your background, you're fluent in eight programming languages, and you're the author of five books, and apparently an upcoming sixth one, The Tiger and the Rabbit, to be released in August. Could you talk about that? First off, how did you become fluent in eight programming languages? And how did you get it? And how did you get into authorship, actually writing books and putting it out there? Because that is very bold for most people. Yeah, so um, I just, I'm just a geek girl. So I just would start programming in a language and someone say, oh, this language is better. So I would go and learn that language. I've recently wow. been 
learning Python with my daughter. Um, it's, you know, one of the hotter, I guess, I don't know if it's so new anymore, but one of the hotter, you know, picked uppers in terms of languages. And so I just like to see the differences in the languages and how they're, how they're being used. So um, that's kind of how I, how I picked up all those languages. I love to write code and do things on the weekend. Yeah. Now the books, uh, the book was really interesting because I, I love to write. I've always loved to write, but I'm really a math and science person. So the combination is quite interesting. Interesting, yeah. And so I love to teach and I was teaching once on a topic and they said, you should write a book on this because as you're teaching at this conference, you're hitting, you know, maybe 5,000 people. But if you wrote a book, you could share your knowledge with more people. And so um, it actually happened to be a publisher. And so I wrote my first book and um, it did really well. It was on a technology subject called SOA, Service Oriented Architecture, which the cloud is built on today. Um, and that book went to be a bestseller. It was uh, translated into yeah. like all these different languages and was a bestseller in China and Japan and the U.S. And it's really quite funny. And so once I did that, I just fell in love with writing. So as I discovered new emerging technologies, I would write about them uh, for a couple of reasons. One, I wanted to share my knowledge. And two, I wanted there to be women who were not just writing about women, but writing or women's issues, but actually writing about the technology so that they could be recognized in their field and then inspire that next generation to say, wow, if Sandy can do that, I can do that too. And so I really love the opportunity to share what we were doing um, so that others could potentially follow suit as well. And so my new book is actually something I've never done before, Adam. It is a business fable. So it's actually like written, it's written as a story. Um, Patrick wrote a business fable about teams and the, it was called The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. I love that book. It went on to be like a national bestseller. And um, I thought, what better way to explain the power of Web3 AI and the metaverse than to try to use stories. Right. You know, stories are so memorable. Can we use stories to to explain what's happening right now and perhaps get more people really familiar with it? So again, this is a new attempt because I don't think there's ever been a business fable about technology. So we'll see how it goes. But I'd love, you know, anybody who's listening, if you order or pre-order, I'd love your, you know, your thoughts on yes. it. I'll put work? the links up later. Okay, good. Okay, good. Um, but, you know, I really, um, it was really hard. This book was really hard because I've got dialogue in it. Right. I've got characters in it. It's more like a fiction book, right? Because it's a business fable than my normal, this is what SOA is. Here's, you know, how you use it. This is really dialoguing and you're asking questions. So it was very different for me. Wow. Well, if it could be said that, civilization societies are built on storytelling then you putting out this book a fable conceptualizing web 3 that's going to be one of the instruments as far as a mass message towards mass adoption and i think that's absolutely incredible creative that you decided to use a fable as a style to tell this narrative what led you to well i guess you could say come up to, to, to Excuse me, to that idea, because you've written five books already. 
And this is really flipping the script, to say the least. Yeah, it is. Well, I think there was a couple of things. So one was, um, you know, as I was thinking through all the business books I've read, what was what were the ones that I still remember? Like, if you just stop to think, Patrick's book on the five dysfunctions of a team stuck with me because he wrote it as a story. So that was right. one. Um, the second is one of my favorite quotes says, tell me the facts and I'll believe, but tell me a story and it will live in my heart forever. So I was like, okay, uh, I want this to be really impactful and memorable, right? Not something that someone reads and then tosses away. And then the third thing was, you know, really your question at the very beginning about mass adoption, what do we need to do? We need to make it simpler. And so I don't know if I succeeded fully in doing that. Um, I tried really hard to do analogies and to, you know, help people to understand it with, with real, real world, real world words um, to see if we could get more people to just understand the concept. So that was the kind of the, the genesis of it. And then when I pitched it to the publisher, this was Wiley, um, who has been exceptional to work with. They were like, yes, let's do it. Let's like, let's, let's, let's go. Like they didn't hesitate. They didn't say, let's think about that. I'm not sure it's going to work. They were like, we love this idea because we have all these books and the concept is so hard um, that people, you know, they write in and they're like, I read the book. I still don't get it. So let's try it this way. So that's kind of, you know, that experimentation too. It's kind of the web three ethos, right? To experiment, try new things. Yes, absolutely. And as an author, do you have a favorite book or a series of favorite books? Well, it's interesting. So um, I love fiction and I love murder mysteries. So I don't okay. know what that's about me, um, but I love all of the... Sense of adventure. Yeah, sense of, mm-hmm. sense of adventure. But, you know, all the way back to Agatha Christie, who's like the oh, master yes. at uh, mystery to, you know, Mary Higgins Clark, who's like the new master of murder mystery. I love those type of books. On the business side, I love reading um, Malcolm Godwell, who has interesting concepts, right, about, you know, outliers. And I mean, all of his books are just so cool because I don't think like that. And I love books that open my mind up to thinking very differently about things. So I thought, and I actually heard him speak he is a magnificent speaker, and uh, he also was giving some really good, I mean, just very on-target things. Like when he writes his book and he sells his book, he does it in a certain way. But when he puts his book on like, you know, a Kindle where someone's reading it, right. through his marketing, like how he selects the voice and how he markets it and what he, it was, it was fast. I mean, you figure out how brilliant this guy is. From listening to him, I heard him talk about outliers and then him talking about his strategies for a written book, a verbal book. It's just, he's just really smart. So I love learning from people who have ideas that I've never, ever thought of before. Right. And what was among some of the most positive feedback or commentary you have received about your authorship? Is there a style that you're known for? Is there a tone that you're known? Well, you know, my first book I wrote, people loved it because we were in this transition between cloud and no cloud, and people were really struggling with the concepts of that. And so 
the whole concept of the book was, you know, really forget, you know, under here's the underpinning technology, but let's forget about that. Let's right. really talk about the use cases that this cloud thing can bring to the table. And so I think what people liked about it was it was, you know, here's the here's the water line. We're going to tell you about the technology that's underneath it, but we're really going to focus on the top line of what the technology can bring you. I think the customer stories that I tell are probably one of the things. Um, and then on this book, I, you know, you send your book out when you get your manuscript done, you send it out to all kinds of people to read it. Um, and then you ask for quotes, like, can you give me a quote about the book? Sure. Right. And uh, one of my favorite quotes came in from Kate from Pepsi. And uh, one of the things that I um, talk about in the book is that you shouldn't have a tiger team, like which comes in, tries to solve a problem. You really should have a rabbit team looking at yeah. these technologies um, to dive deep, to move fast. And right. uh, probably one of the best quotes I've ever received is they at Pepsi formed a rabbit team after reading the early copy of my book. Like, I don't know about you, but to have a company like Pepsi say, I read That's... your book and I did this action because I read your book. I thought that was really freaking cool. <laughs> yeah. Say the very least. That is, that is an incredible accomplishment. And, and what is a more tangible way of that manifesting than that example to say the very least. I wanted to ask you about the unstoppable women of web three. Uh, you're the chair of that. Could you talk about that initiative and, some of the issues uh, you're trying to resolve. Yeah, so when I came into Unstoppable, uh, one of the very first, I would say, lucky things that happened to me was that people were fascinated that I left Amazon, which is an amazing company, to go to a Web3 company. Um, and they were like, what is she doing? What is she thinking? So the New York Times jumped in and wrote an article about it. And so we ended up getting, Adam, like 1,500 resumes that came into our little company uh, that wanted to come and work for us, which was, which was just like huge. The problem was when I looked at the resumes, only 2% of them were women. Oh, wow. And that's very unusual. Like even at Amazon, like I was at Amazon Web Services usually 40% of the audience who, uh, you know, came to be, you know, to apply for roles with me were women. And that's a very techie field. So I was like, what's going on here? So I started talking to some of the women and I said, why didn't you apply? Like, what turned you away? And they were like, well, I don't really know what it is. Like, what is Web3? Like, what is minting? And you talked about NFTs and your job thing. I don't know what an NFT is. And, uh, and then I talked to, there are other women and other, you know, companies that are senior women. And I started talking to them. They're like, I have the same problem. Like, it's really like in my past role at Microsoft, at Google, wherever I was, I could recruit lots of people, but here I'm having a really hard time. And so we got together and we said, you know, part of it is women will apply to a job when they have 10 of 10 men, unfortunately, men will apply for a job when they have four of 10. So how do we get women to have more of the criteria? And one of the biggest was, I don't even understand what you're talking about. And so I founded this group called Unstoppable Women of Web3. Our mission and our focus was really all about um, how do you, 
how do you um, get educated enough so that you know, so you can check those boxes that say, yep, I know what right. NFT is. Yep, I know what crypto is. Yep, I know. And so our mission is to educate. I started with the mission and I had hoped to get about 20 companies, maybe 40 companies to come in and help us do this education. Right now we have 220 companies. So blew it away. We not only had big companies in Web3 like Polygon and Blockchain and OpenSea, um, Algorand, but we also had amazing Web2 companies, Google Cloud, um, Deloitte. They came in too and said, we want to help too, because this is the next generation of the internet and we want it to be diverse. We want to have that innovation. And so we founded the company. We've done that education mission. Um, I'm really pleased to say that we just won a Webby Award for the work that we're doing. Wonderful. I, one of the, my top ones is um, at CES, we won Best of Show at CES um, for being able to articulate vision and value and for a future-looking view. CES, like we're like this little startup. We won CES in Vegas, Best That's of Show. Incredible. And then we won uh, two lovies. We developed our headquarters in Decentraland, which is a metaverse. And so we host meetings in the metaverse. And we did that because we felt women could be educated by having to create their avatar to come to our meeting, right? And so it gets them out of their comfort zone to come in and hear this fantastic content. They have to come in. Right. And so we won two lovies for the ease of use of our metaverse nice. and be able to come in. Um, and then the other thing that we did, which I think is just phenomenal, is we published lists twice a year, um, most inspirational women of Web3 and most inspirational girls of Web3. And so we did top 25 young girls. Last year, I had a six-year-old who was writing smart contracts. Oh, that's very nice. Six Impressive too, by the way. Oh my gosh. At six, can you remember right. you at six years old? Yeah, not that. Not I'll tell you that, that. much. Right. Um, so it was just incredible. And we do that because we do know that if you can see it, you can be it. And so women look for other role models. And if they see none, they're like, oh, maybe a woman can't do that. So I wanted to showcase all these amazing women across the globe who had done it so that people could look up to them. Right. And I would imagine, you know, through this initiative and others, you've been somebody a person that many women would look up to. And I would imagine at various points, you've been a mentor to you know, various women throughout their careers. So when it comes to Web3, is there an anecdote of some type of consequential advice, memorable piece of advice you've given? And, I, and you know, it really, that really stuck and really you know, perhaps showed some results in the near or even, you know, you could say, or even in the far reach future? Well, so one I would say is with these young girls. Um, we actually announced the top 25 young girls in Miami. Okay. And uh, one of the conferences actually gave some of the young girls booth space for free so they could come and show what they were doing. Right. And I still remember one of the young girls, she was eight years old. She ran up to me and she gave wow. me a big, Hug, and she said, I want to be you one day. What should I do? Like, what do I have to do? Wow. And this is interesting advice, but I told her, you know, yeah, I'll go ahead and focus on creating your business, but 
also have fun, right? Like balance, but too, because Web3 is really fun. And um, I ran into her mom a year later and her mom came up to me and gave me a big hug. And she said, you know, thank you. My daughter is so obsessed with NFTs and Web3 that she really wasn't a little girl. She was wow. really growing up super fast. And so your simple message of having fun so now she started NFT parties with her friends. So she still has the NFT. Oh, wow. That's excellent. Now using it for fun with her, with her girlfriend. So I love that because uh, I think I hopefully impacted not just one girl, but many next future generation girls as well as we've gone forward. And then um, I would tell you that there was one lady that we uh, named to the most inspirational women of Web3. And she told me she was really struggling in her company, which was a Web3 company. So I won't use names or companies. Sure. Um, but we gave her the honor. And I sent a note to her boss saying that she had been recognized. And she said it was the first time that her boss had actually said, you know, wow, you are impacting this. And he announced it on a like a, an all-company call that she had gotten the, the award. And she told me that um, it not only helped her personally be motivated, but it got her external recognition too that ended up getting her a promotion. So wow. those are two things that I think, you know, I think it's really all about reaching back and pulling someone forward with you and making sure that you leave no one behind. Right. And on a personal level, since venturing into Web3 and carving out this path, what were some of the biggest obstacles you personally faced? Because this is a very novel, controversial technology. And I would imagine somebody with your background, and this could be from well-meaning family, friends, colleagues, they must have, at least one person must have gone up to you, even well-intentioned, and say, Sandy, what are you doing? Why are you going in this, in this direction? Many, many, many people. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Um... You know, many people who know me know I always go after the next emerging tech. So they kind right. of expected it, but I had so many people who were really skeptical because of the crypto angle. I think a right. lot of people associate Web3 equals crypto, crypto right. equals scam. And right. they know me and they know who I am and they know I'm very ethical and very honest. So that was the biggest question I actually ended up having to answer, Adam, was you're not a scammer. Why are you in this? And so it actually caused me for the first almost year to explain Web3 doesn't equal crypto. Exactly. Crypto is one use case of blockchain, but also not everybody who uses crypto is a scammer. Right. It's really hard to see that because, you know, you've got things like, you know, FTX that happen and then other sure. events that happen. And it's really hard. I think that was probably the biggest one that I had to overcome. On the tech side, like a lot of people, Web3 and Metaverse people got, they find it fascinating and they thought it was really interesting work. But anybody who associated with crypto had a really big problem with it. And I think even probably today still does, you know, um, crypto has such a bad rap right now. Sure. Absolutely. And often a quote I hear from people is that we're living in science fiction right now. So as somebody who has both the very deep math and science aptitude, 
but also has a very nuanced and refined ability as far as creating, writing, and expressing literature or expressing ideas and thoughts and ideas. Is there a particular movie, of course, that rings as among your favorites as far as being relevant to today? I'll tell you mine. One of my favorite movies, which is a sci-fi movie, is Blade Runner, the original one. And I saw the new one, too. I oh. thought in many ways, not like it was, it was presented as, as a dystopia. I didn't entirely look at it that way. But, you know, obviously, sometimes movies, cinema, they, they can more or less operate as a foreshadowing of what's to come. Yeah, it's really true. You know, um, you know, I'm a big Star Wars, Star Trek fan. I like both. Right. People like one, some people like the other. And if you look in, if you know, if you look at what's happening there, especially with a lot of the, you know, identification of who's real, like you have to verify yourself, right? Right. Um, I I find there's a lot of really interesting views there. And in one episode, I don't know if you remember it, but it was on Star Trek. Okay. Uh, they were talking about data, like, and, you know, what, how you're using your data. Right. And I walks into his, you know, his like pod where he sleeps. And up on the screen is this like view of his personal data. It's got some healthcare data. It's got some purchase data. And right. he's saying like, how much money did I make off my data? That was in wow. a Trek episode, not a movie, but one, I guess it's a, it's right. a TV, but maybe I just right. buy it. The episodal series. Yes, I remember it. But it was really fascinating uh, when I rewatched that to say that's what we're trying to do now, right? We had had mocked up a a futuristic view of how you would manage your data. And I could have just taken it from that episode of uh, Star Trek. So I think that that's kind of interesting. And then, you know, I just remember like even in in the movies, you know, when you look at Kirk, he has to identify himself. And how does he do that? You don't get into the technology, but he does have to identify himself because on many planets, people tried to replicate him even down to the DNA level and he had to verify who he was. So I do look at many of those to say, hey, what's happening? And then someone just recommended the movie, Megan. Have you seen that movie? I've heard it. I haven't seen it yet. So it's where I guess a mom replicates for her daughter, um, a play, a play date or a play child. And the play child is an AI child. Um, okay. A lot of the concepts of taking the child into the metaverse and all of that. Right. Um, and so I think that that's kind of interesting too, right? They said it's kind of funny, kind of tongue in cheek. I haven't seen it yet, but everybody who meets me says, you've got to watch that movie. So I don't know why, but that's what they're telling me. <laughs> right. And one of the terms I've heard thrown out there for the past year and a half, year or so, is MetaFi, Metaverse Finance. So when we think of our banking system, how probable is it that you and I and you could say the, uh, the greater of society will be doing our finances and doing banking and investing and organizing our lives effectively within the universe, within the mega, I'm sorry, within the Metaverse. Metaverse, yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I think that that's going to happen. I think that, you know, as you look at the metaverse, I think there are, you know, I was thinking about this today. There are kind of three elements of the metaverse, if you really think about it. So one is kind of a a transport kind of view, right? Like you're transported into that metaverse. Like you, you see the virtual world around you and everything. 
One is that, you know, transformation, almost like spatial computing or even like the Apple glasses that you see today, right? Your being right. The wearables. Yes. And then the third one is transactional, which is what you're talking about of the metaverse, which is how do you do commerce and how do you transact things in the metaverse? And so I do see like each of those elements of the metaverse being really important, how you transport, how you transform and how you transact. And I think, I think it's a progression almost to Adam. Like, I think we have to be transported, transformed, and then trans uh, transacting. So I think you're kind of in phase three. I think we're just starting phase two with some of the things we're seeing today. I do think we're going to get to that phase three on the transaction side as well. Wow. And wonderfully put as well. So on a final note, Sandy, thank you very much for coming on to the show today. I found the points you raised incredibly enlightening, to say the very least, as far as where is this technology going? What are some of the positives and perceived negatives? And how do we, in other words, decentralize society forward? Thank you very much. It was great to chat with you. You asked great questions. Uh, And I love how we almost came full circle, you know, like you started with how do we get this more widespread and we kind of ended up like back there again. So I love the that's great storytelling. So, uh, you know, start with the point at the front end and then end with it and close with it. So great job as well. to Oh, thank you very much, Sandy. I really do appreciate that. And, you know, I look forward to seeing you speak at the various Web3 and blockchain conferences throughout the year so. If I happen to be speaking or appearing at one of those, uh, I'll certainly give you a heads up ahead of time. And perhaps uh, we can do a follow-up episode to this, perhaps in person, where we can pick up from essentially where we left off and where we're at. Yeah, that would be super fun. Yeah, and if anybody out there is going to Paris for ECC, the conference that sold out in 10 minutes, I still cannot believe it in this market. 10 minutes, Uh, I will be there, and I would love to see you. Excellent. And again, uh, thank you so much, Sandy, for coming on to this episode today and really getting into the nuances and the almost the abstract for all of these things. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Adam. I'll yep. talk to you. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.